Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fisher. This month, we've got another fabulous industry expert bringing their skills to the table. Randy Fisher is a highly sought-after keynote speaker who's an expert in training, leadership, performance, and productivity. We're going to talk about how to set goals and how to achieve them, along with a lot of other things that can help your productivity along the way. But I'm going to go ahead and turn things over right now to the man himself, Randy Fisher. Hey, Randy, how are you doing? I am terrific, and I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. I just want to tell everybody before this gets started, despite the similar last names, well, the same last name, as far as I know, we are not related. There's no nepotism Um, here. You'd have to go back a few generations if we are. Right. And in fact, I did find out some of my like four generation back moved down the Ohio Valley over into Illinois. Some may have, you know, stopped off or moved back towards Ohio at some point, but we're 24 cousins at some point or however far back we'd have to go to make that happen. <laughs> why don't you tell, uh, besides that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm really excited to, to kind of talk about the topics that we're going to dive into today because I've been traveling around the country the last couple of years doing um, leadership workshops, leadership seminars, and and coaching leaders across our country on just how to communicate better. Um, And I have found as I'm doing these leadership seminars across the country that most people, they have no idea how to set goals anymore. We've kind of pulled out goal setting from schools. We don't talk about it near as much as we used to. And and because of that, it has faded a little bit. I've kind of gotten more into it. Uh, It used to be one of those things that nobody talked about. Uh, because it was covered so extensively with young people. But um, it has become a big part of my business to actually talk about goal setting and what do you want? Why do you want it? How can you make it happen? And so basically, that's what I do. I, I travel around the country talking about leadership, talking about communication skills and goal setting. Why do you think that has been pulled out of schools? So there's probably a lot of reasons for it. Uh, probably the biggest one is time. They're, they're, they're under such, such uh, small time constraints to get the actual stuff they have to teach for the tests. They don't have time to talk about goal setting anymore. And a lot of those basic life skills aren't taught nearly the way they used to be. Yeah. You think, they, I mean, they always taught us as part of a project. So in a month, you have this paper due. Here's how you lay out the steps to get there. Here's how you work to those steps and kind of, you know, mini project plan. And it helped you to learn as you went to develop that skill. And of course, I didn't think it was very effective at the time, but I did learn a little bit about it and then have to set those goals for myself. Now, it's, it's much harder without the teacher telling you exactly how to do it. Yeah, you know, you bring, up, you bring that up and uh, right along those same lines, you know, back when we were in English class, and they used to have to tell you you had to write an outline before you wrote the paper, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that was one of the biggest wastes of time. I hated writing outlines. To this day, I, I don't really love it. But I have found, you know, you talk about the Toastmasters connection. If you're going to give a really good Toastmasters speech, going back to a solid outline of, you know, this is my theme, this is what supports my theme, and this is how I get there with, you know, my supporting points, there's really not a better way to put together a great presentation. No, in fact, that's really all I write. And then I go through it you know, 20 or 30 times and tweak it a little bit till, the, till I have it pretty much familiar in my head, if not memorized as I'm going through. And I work from that outline, but you're right. It, it develops that opening points, closure, that frame that you really need if you're going to deliver a good presentation and make sure your points get across. And I, like I said, I hated it in school. Oh, yeah. I actually yeah. hated it. <laughs> it's funny how school can ruin so many good things that we, we come to appreciate when we're older, being forced still, to learn something. I still have a monastic diagram a sentence, though. Now, I actually have done that on, my, on the private side. So doing some literary studies and you, it's 
you have to diagram the sentence to decide exactly where things fit, but it's very rare. And I don't think I could actually do it anymore. I've thought about making my kids do it just to, so they can suffer the same way I suffered. But I don't think they use that anymore. <laughs> I, I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> well, we homeschool, so we can torture them any way we like, but we, we try not to. Yeah, <laughs> by all means. Yeah, if now CPS is coming to my house. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> You have a keynote you call smart work. And I think this would be really good for our audience because a lot of us are, are ambitious. We want to get somewhere, but like we've discussed, we didn't learn the right way to set plan, to set goals in place, to meet those plans uh, and to use the, the tools that are really out there. Cause there's always a new app. I, f- I found a new one today called mural that somebody was using at work. It's a virtual whiteboard. You can have a post-it notes and sticker and mm-hmm. draw things for a virtual meeting which was really handy. Tell us a little bit about how you help people develop those plans to meet their goals and, and how that process works. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the, the new tools that are out there because I found the more tools that you have, the, least, the less productive you become because it gets so much, it, there's so much fun to play with all of the, the new technology. You know, it's fun to get a new planner and to go through it, but you, a lot of that, the newness wears off and then you find yourself trying to find ways to use it and you're not nearly as productive as you were before. So, and all of them, all of those tools in and of themselves aren't inherently bad, but the fascination with them have led us, I think, as a workforce to be generally less productive. So, can, where my smart work program really comes from is establishing very early on, what's the most important thing that you can get done today? And establishing that before your day ever starts. Because if some early morning work to figure out what that is and, and put down your top priority for the day. Yeah, to me, the, first, the most important moments of your day are the first 15 minutes of the day before anything else starts. And, and if you think about the way most people do that, um, most people, they dive headfirst into their emails or social media. And, and to me, neither one of those are a great way to start your day in a way where you're going to be productive to get the best out of your working hours. Because when you open your email, what you're really doing is walking headfirst into a neatly categorized idea of other people's priorities. It's other people and what they want from you, and, and they're expecting you to spend your time in different ways, but you're not in control in that moment. The, the great line is either you run your day or your day runs you, and if your day's running you, it's going to run you right into the ground. If you're starting your day with your email or even with social media, you're really allowing that to happen. You're allowing someone else to take control of your priorities and how you're going to spend your time. So to me, I really think you need to spend that first 15 minutes a day getting very clear on what's the most important thing you can get done today. And, and that's a hard question to answer. But when you get very clear on what the most important thing that you can get done today, that completely determines what your calendar looks like. That completely de- determines what your task list is going to look like. That completely determines what kind of tools you're going to use. So when you get very clear about that, and I think writing it down, and listen, Jason, you and I were talking before we got started today about um, our, my love affair with Google, and you love a lot of the same apps I love. I, I use an online calendar like, like you do. Mm-hmm. I still, there's a lot of, of value to writing down what those priorities are. And to me, it comes down to what's the most important thing I'm going to do today, and what are the three big tasks I've got to get done before anything else happens? Yeah, I've read some studies about the difference between writing something and typing something is in terms of taking notes and remembering things better and actually having it committed more to your brain. So there are some places where I still write by hand because I, I want that experience. I'm, lear- I'm on a new project now. I'm trying to learn all these, you know, the vocabulary, the acronyms, all the, all the jargon associated with this business. 
I'm writing it by hand because it sticks in my brain a little bit better. And when I journal or I'm writing my notes for what I want to do for the day or mind mapping, I still like the tactile feel of, of writing by hand. And then I'll take a picture of it and upload it to Google Keep, as we discussed earlier. So I've got yeah. that permanent record. Yeah, and that's a great idea. But most people, most people, if you ask them if they know which way they learn, they have no idea, right? I, I found as, as I've been coaching leaders across the country, most people consider themselves to be visual learners. But if you take the, the, a simple little five-question quiz that, that we've put together, you're going to determine whether or not you're a visual learner, a kinesthetic learner, an auditory learner. I would say a, a larger percentage of the population that actually knows they're kinesthetic learners need to have a physical experience with something in order to process the information the right way. Well, what's the, way, what's the best way that you can experience something as you're trying to determine what you're going to do that day? It's putting a pen in your hand and actually writing it down. And so when you, when you write it down, you're committed stronger than you are to when you type it out or when you just think about it. Writing it down will reinforce your commitment to actually getting it done. Yeah, absolutely. It, there is something about that commitment device to yourself that locks you in and makes you feel like, I really need to do this. I don't want to write it down again. I, I used to do a method where if I didn't get something, I didn't just use the same list. I had to write all the things I didn't get done on the next page. And it pushed me to get those things done because I didn't want to have to rewrite them because I was being lazy in that oh, aspect. Yeah. Uh, right along those same lines, um, I, I love lists. I think lists are a great way to do it. I find though that if I have... If I, if I have just one list, I spend way too much mental energy trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I, I find it so much better that if I can organize my day based upon the, the tools that I'm going to have available to me. So I'll have a list of all the things that I need to get, do, that I need to get done while I'm at work. All the things that I can only get done when I'm at home. I'll have a list of phone calls that I can make, a list of things that I can only do when I'm at my computer, a list of things that I can only do when I'm out of the office by breaking it down based upon the resources that are available to me, then it becomes like instant. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do next. I know that I have a 15 minute block at my computer. I open up my at computer list. There's all the things I need to get done that day right there in front of me. So having multiple lists, depending on what I've got to get done that day has been a tremendous help to me. And if you've read it, if you've read it all, uh, the, the great book, getting things done. I have not. No. Highly recommends having multiple lists based upon the resources that are available. That makes sense because there are times when you have to look through a whole list to go, okay, I, I, I can't talk on the phone right now. What can I get done? And you've got to look at a different list. It would make sense to have just a list for those things when you've got, or these things will take less than two minutes. There's just a lot of them. I need to right. knock that off. I've got 10 minutes. I could kill 10, you know, five of these things. That'll be great. Not to mention the fact if you've got, you know, 50, 100 things on a list, and that's not uncommon for most of us who are very busy throughout the day, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. You look at all of that ink on the paper, or all of those things, that whatever app you're using, it's very easy to get overwhelmed looking at that entire list. But you break it down to what I can do with the next 15 minutes based upon the tool I have, that list shrinks considerably. And then if you just start at the top, you know you're going to get the most effective thing done. To me, having those multiple lists is a great start. I agree. I agree. I like that idea. I have to... I talk to so many people who have, who have great concepts, but you can't use them all. So again, I've got to figure out what works right for me right now. And, and I may adopt that. I have one list now and I may just break it down into lists that make a little more sense or at least put categories on the lists that I have. Are you, are you writing them all down? Or are you using some sort of um, electronic application for that? I use, this was from, with my kids, there's an app called Habitica and it's a game that 
you know, it's like an old Final Fantasy or a, a role-playing game where every task that you beat gives you experience points and you go up to a higher level. So we were all playing that as a family, but I found it was actually pretty productive, uh, just the interface that they have where you can create a daily thing uh, to do, which is a one-time or a habit that you're mm-hmm. trying to create or break. And you, yeah. can, you can go in there and click on those and give yourself points or take away points if you, have, if you do your bad habit or you do your good habit. You can give yourself points for that. So I've stuck with that just because it's, it's what the whole family used and we did it together and it's worked out really well. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And, and it sounds similar to what Todoist has because Todoist has different levels that you can hit as you, as you knock out tasks that you've entered into it. And it allows you to then to, to have all, all kinds of different categories so that you can have a list of things that you're going to do at home, a list of things that you can only do at your office. And to me, having, having the breakdown that way has been effective. So let me circle this back around a little bit. We talked again before we got started. We're hitting the end of January. I've I've read that most New Year's goals fail by the 12th. So we're past that point. We're probably talking to a lot of people, especially by the time the show drops, that had a plan, had an idea. It fell by the wayside. And you're saying that people aren't being taught how to to make goals anymore. Why is it that they fail? Apart from that lack of planning, is it if people are saying goals too high or they just you have a vague idea, but don't actually write things down and commit a plan on how to do it. Why is it that so many of our aspirations fall apart? I really think it's twofold. First of all, you talk about they set their goals too high. I think most people don't set their goals high enough. They don't set them high enough, and so they don't get really excited about them. They get, they get that momentary burst of energy, which is why they make it to the 12th, but there's nothing after that to really reinforce it, to, to make, it more and, uh, make it more meaningful to them. And then the second thing is, I don't think they plan for them effectively. You know, they, they, make, they create those lists of resolutions of, you know, I'd like to lose 10 pounds. I'd like to um, better organize my finances. They don't get very specific about exactly what they want. They have no idea why they want it. And then their plan to actually get there usually is lacking. And I can say that with about 150% confidence. Okay. And in your smart work plan, you have design your plan first and then connect your plan to your goals. It seems to me that would be the other way around. Can you explain the difference there? Well, the, the reason that, it, that it's set up that way is I'm assuming that you already have your goals set. Ah, gotcha. And so that when you're coming in to set your plan for the day, that you're actually connecting your plan to your goals. Now, if you don't have your goals set, then we have to go back to what your process is of actually setting goals. And process to me, Jason, is probably the most important thing of everything. You know, if I were to ask you prior to the national championship game on, on the, the 7th of January who the best team in college football was, you would have had to tell me Alabama, right? I mean, we all believed Alabama was the best team, right? Yeah, they were going to walk out of the, the winners. Absolutely. Right. And we all knew what made Alabama the best team. It, it's not talent. Um, you know, Ohio State, Penn State, they've got every bit as much talent as Alabama does. It's not coaching. Um, you know, James Franklin is one heck of a good in-game, in-game coach, right? Um, and I'd say the same for Urban Meyer and, and just about half the other coaches in the country. But what Alabama does better than anybody else is they've got a better process. So if you look at people who are setting goals and they're achieving those goals consistently, it's not because they're more disciplined than we are. And it's not because they're better or they're smarter or because they've got better goals. It's because they've got a better process. So what's your process when it comes to setting goals? To me, I think the most effective way to do it is to get crystal clear on what it is that you want. And I mean crystal clear, which means you're very specific about what your goal is. You know, to say that you want to be healthier by the end of the year, well, that's, that's, that's a hope. That's a wish. That's not a goal. 
when you get crystal clear on what that looks like, you know, what's your body fat percentage, how much weight do you want to lose, whatever that, whatever the metric is, get crystal clear on that. And then the second thing, and probably more important that most people miss, I would say if you look at anybody's goals plan, 99% of the population misses the second step, which is why do you want it? If you've got a strong enough reason why you want it, you'll overcome all the obstacles to get it. Yeah, I would even say you need to start with that why. If you're just setting goals because you think it's a good idea or you think somebody else would tell you that that's a good plan for you, for example, the losing weight, you know, I want to lose weight because I want to look good. Okay, that might be good enough, but I want to lose weight or at least be healthy because I want to be around for my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. That's a goal that might make mean a little more to you. And whatever that is, that why that, that is there, like you said, any, the, the real why can overpower obstacles. It can get around the disappointment. It can recover when you fail. It can, it can make you push yourself further than you thought possible. But most people don't do that. Most people have no idea why they're doing it. And so when you get crystal clear on why, well, then it just comes to how you do it. And to me, the, 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 that, that's where the, the daily grind becomes so critically important. You know, nobody ever lost weight, just to kind of follow that example. Nobody ever lost 100 pounds in a day right? No, nobody got really active, jumped on a treadmill and had instant results. It happened because over a process of time, they stuck to the daily process, they hit the grind and they were disciplined throughout their time. If you've read the book, One Thing, which to me is one of the best books that came out in the last 20 years, um, it talks about how you need to think big and work small. And to me, that's the best way to get back on track with your goals. You've got those big um, you know, the plan, the goal that inspires you and you know why you want it. Get really small into what you need to do every day to make it happen. I'm a big believer in checklists and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about your daily task list. I'm talking about a, a goals checklist that what's one thing that you can do today that will further that goal. And you set that up on a, on a, on a gridded sheet of paper and that's the one thing that you have to do and you have to put a check mark. You have to earn the check mark that you're going to do one thing to drive that goal further down the line. So if your goal is to lose weight, what's one thing that you could do today to lose weight, right? Well, it might be walk around the block. It might be go to the gym. It might be to, you know, choose fries or salad over fries at lunch. Whatever that one thing is, because getting it super, super clear on the smallest increment that I can do today makes it easier for me to stick to it. You know, my goal this year is to read 60 books. There's no way I'm going to be able to read 60 books if I think of them as books. Because there's too many pages and too many chapters and too many ideas to get through in a year. But if I think of, I've got to get through 15 pages this morning and 15 pages this afternoon. If, if that's all I do today, that, that's, that's a very small and doable thing. Chunking it down to this, its most basic element is how you accomplish big goals. And that's not new. I mean, we're talking about what they taught us in school about how to get those big, the, the big projects accomplished. But again, most people don't look at those smallest elements. Right. To your point, if it's, if it's not losing weight, if it's writing the book that you wanted to write, you know, writing 100 words a day leaves you with a decent-sized book by the end of the year if you can do it every day. And 100 words is not even that hard. So you'd probably increase that over time. But those little steps pushing you through, I like looking at it that way because it doesn't seem so insurmountable. Yeah, and going on the, the, write, the writing the book analogy, um, the great Bukowski quote, what, you know, how, do you, how do you write a great book? And it's 200 crappy words a day. Yeah, that's true. They don't have to be good. Just 200 crappy words a day because eventually you're going to find some really good stuff in there. 
Yeah, and you cleaned up the crappy words in your second draft. I mean, it's just a matter of the hardest part is getting that first draft done. At least that's what I was told. I found editing my, my first draft to be very hard as well, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> you, you go back and read those crappy words. You're like, oh, what was I thinking? I got to redo all of this. The number one reason why I haven't written a book is because I don't want to try to sell a book. And because I haven't gotten my head around how I want to sell it, I haven't started writing it. And it all goes back to the why, right? Yeah, for me, it was, it was well, I wanted to be able to, to be able to sit down and write. I was working on, on just building that strength and with building those reps. And it was a lot of, I had to do the study and put the work in and learn what I wanted to learn to be able to write the book about it. And so writing the book was just kind of a, I, I accomplished what I wanted in the learning. Writing the book was just kind of my last cherry on, the, on top to say, I did it. I've accomplished this. I learned all I wanted to learn along the way. I'm happy. And I would imagine the discipline that it took to get through transferred in just about every other area of your life, right? It did. When you've got one of those goals and you're working on it, I think it, it clarifies a lot of the rest of the things in your life. That happened to me in 2011. I, I, I went into my doctor's office. I weighed 335 pounds. And not only that, I had sleep apnea, I had diabetes, I had high blood pressure. I mean, I was a, a walking time bomb as to when, you know, my life was going to end. And, and she made it abundantly clear that if I wanted to see my kids grow up, I had to make some changes right now. And, you know, it's, it's nice when a doctor says something like that, but it yeah. has nothing to Nothing. And then some folks in my office started this, uh, um, a weight loss challenge where there was money on the line and it became fun and, and cool. That's when I wrote my first goals plan of how I was going to, of how I was going to achieve it and getting really clear on why I was doing it. Well, that became, that became abundantly easy. I wanted to win. It wasn't though, those, those really awesome things. You know, I want to see my kids grow up. Although yeah, that would be awesome. Nobody wants to die young. Right. But when became the most important thing to me in that moment. And so I started establishing my plan to get there. And then, so I lost, I lost over a hundred pounds and then I, you know, I've gained some back since then, but just that, the, that experience alone of following that goals plan has made me so much more disciplined in every other area of my life. So, so for those people who believe that you know, setting goals just doesn't work for me, I, I highly recommend that they go out and they set one really big goal. That's the other part. People have way too many goals. They're working on way too many things. Have one really big goal and dedicate yourself to achieving that one goal. And you will shock yourself at how you improve in every other area of your life. I mean, I became a better speaker. I became a better employee. I was working at United Way at the time. I, I became so much better at that. I, everything, everything improved because I improved. And that, that's, that's one of the things that, that becomes so critical that when you, when you go chasing one big goal, everything else becomes easier for you. And do you think that's because it, it has some synergy in the rest of like you're building focus, you're building self-discipline and those things naturally carry over. Or do you think it's just because you're, you're so focused on one thing, you're maybe ignoring things that you, you would have, would have grabbed your attention before, but now you're able to say, no, I have this goal. That's my focus. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I also think, you know, Jim Rohn used to say that average people have hopes and dreams. Confident people have goals and plans. And I think that, you know, when, you're, when you have a real goal and a real plan that you're working for, that's, that's where real authentic confidence comes from. You know, when, when, you, when you say, I had a good day today, I can make this day, I can make tomorrow look like today. I can, you know, I did it today. I really poured it on. I can do better tomorrow. I think that's where you really start to build some confidence in yourself. And most of the time, goal setting really comes down to that self-confidence and having the confidence to, first of all, go for it, but then stay with it when things get hard. 
And that's another place those small steps come into focus. If you're able to, to do something for a week, accomplish one of those little steps every day, you start building that confidence to actually achieve the bigger goal down the line. And the momentum is what carries you. But you have to build, a, you have to build that momentum by doing those small things. And to me, that's where the checklist comes in, right? I kind of stole that idea from, from Jerry Seinfeld. He talked about how he wrote comedy. He had a great big 30-day calendar, and every day that he wrote a joke, he would put a red X on it. And then he would try to make the red X's accumulate so that he would get an entire month of red X's and then two months of red X's and then three months of red X's. Because once you start to get some real momentum behind you, it becomes harder to force yourself to stop than it does to continue moving forward. So, you know, in in my quest to read 60 books, I'm just going to use that as my generic example. I want, I want my check mark for reading my 15 minutes this morning. And I want to make sure that I've got an entire week of check marks. Because even though nobody else is going to see it, even though it's just for me, that's where real momentum comes from. Because I've built that confidence within myself and I'm constantly pushing myself to get the next check mark. You sound a little like me in that self-motivation. I build spreadsheets around some of my goals because I want to see the, 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 the line on the chart go up. And I, I hate it if it levels off and I'm not doing something. I want to, you know, if I was reading 60 books, I'd want to see those pages. I'd, I would mark off 15 pages a day and I want to see that go up and I want that chart to look nice. That's, and that drives me as weird as it is. But if you know yourself, to your point earlier, people don't know how they learn. If you know what motivates you, you can find ways to build in these devices that help you to stay motivated. Well, and you have to find ways to do it yourself. Because you can, you can watch, you know, Tony Robbins on YouTube and you can get really excited watching other people do it. That'll work in the short term. It's like, it's like a sugar high. Eventually, you have to find a way to push yourself. And so, you know, you and I talk about the, the self-motivation of you know, your spreadsheets and my check marks, whatever it is for you to make sure that you come through on it. I, you have to find a way to, to motivate yourself because I can't motivate you. And Jason, you do a great job with your podcast and you're changing lives but you can't motivate other people. They have to find it within themselves to do it. And I'm hoping you know, someday we have a community where we can motivate one another, but you know, until then we have to build those small communities for ourselves, whether it's with our spouses, with an accountability partner, or a friend, someone that can, that can help you along. Have you heard of any I know, interesting or creative ways of, of keeping yourself accountable? I really experienced a lot of fun with the Coach Me app. Have you played with that at all? I downloaded it and examined it, but didn't actually dive into it. Yeah, I, I had some fun with that a couple of years ago. The great thing behind that is the community that they have, right? So you'll, you'll find an entire group of people who are working towards the same goals, who are encouraging one another. And I think that that's positive and having that kind of positive influence around, especially when you're going around something hard and maybe something that, that, that isn't as acceptable to your friends, you know, so mm-hmm. find, finding the community there is easy. But, you know, the other thing is that we're, we're much, much more driven by loss than we are by gain. So wagering to lose something, to me, has always been a great way to do it. I've got my, my brother's girlfriend is trying to quit smoking right now. And, you know, I've tried to say, well, you know, if you go 90 days, I'll take you to a steak dinner or something like that. That doesn't work. What, what really works and what has worked well for her is that if she doesn't go 90 days, she owes me a steak dinner because mm. she's working harder to avoid loss than she is for the actual gain. Yeah, I've heard similar things to motivate yourself. Some, I can't remember what book it was now. It's going to drive me crazy. But they basically wrote a check to a charity that they were against and gave it to their spouse and said, if I don't, commit, if I don't complete this, then you mail that check in. And I think it was, it was around not, not drinking a certain thing because then they, by instinct, grabbed it out of the fridge and drank it. And they were like, oh, 
Okay. <laughs> you, you have to judge whether or not this is an official loss. I'll get, I'll, I'll leave it in your hands, but it was that, that sense of loss to not want to lose that thing that made them put, hold on and, and push further. You probably see the because I said so movement where you write on a card that you're going to make a commitment and you give it to someone. And then if you if you fail on the commitment, you have to go and ask them for it. No, and I haven't. There That's are yeah, there are so many things that I'd rather do than go tell somebody that I didn't make, make good on a commitment. You know, I know myself well enough to know that I'm driven more by recognition than I am by money or by anything else. And so if I'm going to lose face by having to go tell somebody that I couldn't make, make good on my commitment, and I, make my, I need my card back. To me, I think that, that would be a bigger, a bigger loss than having to pay money or anything else. Now that one I think I can use. That would, that's interesting. So you give, it, you give it to somebody with the, this is what I'm going to do. You give it to them. And if you, if you succeed, they keep it. But if you fail, you have to say, look, I, I failed. Can you give me the card back? Right. Hmm. I hate that idea, which means I think I should use it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, he's, a, he's got his own foundation called Because I Said So. And it's all around the idea that his father never missed a commitment. That if his father told him he was going to do something, he did it. And then he lost his father. And to kind of honor the, the, the way his father made good on commitments that he developed this system of cards where you write your commitment on your card, you give it to someone else. And if you don't go make good on the commitment, you have to go ask for the card back. Yeah, I would hate it myself. I would absolutely hate doing that. Yeah, I'll look, at, I'll look that up and put it in the show notes afterwards. So we don't have to come up with the, the name right now, but it'll, be, it'll sure. be there for anybody who wants to look at it later. All right, so listed here in your, your outline, manage your bucket. Have we, have we talked about that or is that something different? We have not talked about that at all. Okay. Uh, we all have certain buckets that, that, that we deal stuff with, right? Um, your desk is a bucket. Um, your head is a bucket. You've got buckets at home where you accumulate stuff. How do you organize all the things that you have in a way that you can actually process it and, process it and use it? You know, if, you, if I walk into your office and your, your desk is covered in papers I'm going to fairly, fairly or unfairly, I'm going to judge you based upon that. And I think most other people would as well. But I think that it becomes emotionally draining to walk in and see all that work and all of that disorganization. And to work in that every day, it's really hard to get clear on what you're working towards with that kind of disorganization. So I think taking control of your buckets becomes really important. And again, I'll reference David Allen's great book, Getting Things Done, and having an inbox where everything that hits your desk hits your inbox. Now, you process that inbox once a day so that it's constantly, you know, the, the piles are going down, but having a place to manage just your desk. And then how do you manage your head? That's another big thing because, you know, I, I'm, I'll quote David Allen and say, you know, your head is a great place for having ideas. It's a lousy place for storing ideas. Yeah, that's true. So we've got to find a great place to store those ideas that we'll, that we'll go back and look at it consistently. So using a journal, using Google Keep, using, you know, a different kind of application to get those thoughts out of your head so that you can actually process and think and determine what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. Determine what needs your attention, what doesn't need your attention. But you'll focus so much better when you manage those buckets. Right. When you keep things organized, understand where your focus has to be at any given time. Right. And just as a tip, if you're going to write your ideas down, write down enough of the idea that you're going to know what it is a week from now when you come back to it. Because I've, I've done that and looked at something, but I don't know what this means, but it was a great idea at the time. 
and try to write legibly, right? Because that's the worst part. I was at a conference recently and I was looking at my notes and I couldn't make out a single thing that I wrote down. And I know that when the speaker was talking, I was inspired. It was good stuff. And I can't act on any of it because my handwriting was legible. That's the one reason I do like to type because I type much faster than I can write and it's always legible and searchable. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have my laptop with me and I'm not very good at typing with my thumbs. I'm not near millennial enough to be able to, you know, get that stuff out as fast as I need to. Oh, for so sure. I was writing, I was writing it with my stylus pen on, on my, on my um, S note. And because of that, I, it was, it was nasty. I can't read any of it. Oh, that's a shame. Now you'd have to convince yourself that there really wasn't anything worthwhile in what you wrote. Yeah. Great thing is, I think I know the speaker. So if I can just, you know, kind of get some notes from him, right? There you go. Have him send over his outline. And at least you've got something. Right. Once you've managed those buckets, I think it's, it's, that will kind of help you manage information. Because we all get, we have so much information coming at us every day. What gets our attention? What doesn't get our attention? Having a process to manage, and again, coming back to process. You know, every time you pick something up out of that, out of that inbox, when you're processing the inbox, the question is, can I do it in less than two minutes? Because if you can do it in less than two minutes, you ought to do it. Because it's going to sap more of your attention, more of your focus than just not do it. So get it over with. You know, and if it's, going to take, if it's going to take longer than two minutes, then you ask yourself, am I the best person to do it? And do I need to do it now? If it's one of those things where you, know, you are the best person to do it, you better schedule it. Because we only really do what we schedule. So... And if, if, it's, if, it's, if you're not the best person to do it, then you have to delegate it and delegate it effectively. But if, if you're going to do it yourself, make a date and an appointment on your calendar. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've noticed way too frequently with, with leaders that I've talked to, their calendars look like their diaries. So there's just all these notes on their calendar. But your calendar should be clear. Your calendar should be sacred appointments that you're keeping to yourself and others. It shouldn't be a place where you wrote down what happened today. It should be the appointments that you're, that you're keeping with others, the appointments you're keeping to yourself. So when I'm picking up a piece of paper and I know I have to do this thing, I'm going to look at my calendar, find the best time to do it and schedule it right then. That way I know I'll get to it and I know I'll get it done. But if I'm just hoping that I'm going to get to it eventually, that's a great way to see things fall through the cracks. And then you're, you're constantly trying to play catch up and you don't have time to work on your goals then. So when you manage your bucket effectively, that's the next step to actually using your calendar effectively. I think that's really helpful if, if people can, can organize those things because oftentimes I use, um, I think Stephen Covey made it famous, but it was actually Roosevelt's quadrant of things that are yeah. urgent, not urgent, important, not, not important. Mm-hmm. And if you can fig- figure out some way to categorize the things coming in, then to your point, you've, you've narrowed down what you're doing. You're also making sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're managing that bucket of time that you have. And then we, we could talk a little bit about the, the energy to make sure that we, we aren't killing ourselves and wearing ourselves out on unimportant things. Would you have any tips on that for us? There's a great book called The Power of Full Engagement. And it's an older book. It was written in the, in the early 90s. But the whole point they made is that you only have so much mental bandwidth to get through the day. And, and when you exhaust the, that mental bandwidth on things that don't matter, you're, you're never going to be able to catch up from it. So manage, managing your energy, it becomes so important. The great analogy that I love is finding Central Park. If you've ever flown over New York in an airplane and you look down and you see Central Park from 30,000 feet, it looks like a gigantic waste of space. 
you know, there's this sea of asphalt and skyscrapers and all everything around. And there's just this green space, just like hanging out in the middle of nowhere, right? If you've ever spent time in New York, you realize why Central Park exists is so that, you know, the city doesn't explode because they actually need that there to, 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 for people to de- decompress, have that, that connection with nature. To me, Central Park is the white space on your calendar. If you're planning your night, if you're planning your whole week on a Sunday night, that half hour block on a Tuesday afternoon looks like wasted space. You could fit something else in there. But by 1.30 on Tuesday, you know you need that time. You're going to explode. Having some white space on your calendar to kind of re-energize yourself becomes your ticket to actually getting more things done because burnout is what kills so many great people, but they burn themselves out on, wrong, on, the, on the wrong things. They burn themselves out on things that are totally unimportant. You know, you talk about Roosevelt's quadrant of the urgent, right? They spend way too much time in quadrant three, not near enough time in quadrant two. And it's because they're spending on their, all of their time on those things that are urgent and not important that it's just, they're, they're burning themselves out. Well, how do you find what's in quadrant two? Reflection time. It's time to spend some time. Even it is not a waste of your time to spend some time reading at work because you ought to be sharpening your mind so that you can come back at your work fresher and more engaged than you were before. So managing your energy is the one resource that we talk so little about. And I'm not just talking about the way you eat. I'm talking about the way you, you physically manage yourself throughout the day. And it's almost like it's it's forbidden. You know, I don't know if it's if just the way our culture was developed. You know, we have to be busy. If we're seen as not being busy, then we're somehow failing at work. Like you said, your know, reading would be a great thing at work, but no one sits at their desk reading a book. You know, you might read online, but then as soon as someone walks on the corner, you're going to alt tab back to you know something where it'll look like you're busy. I've worked right. at a few places because- that appreciated that aspect and, and allowed for and planned for that white space, but very very few. Yeah, we wear busy like a badge of honor, right? And, and it all goes back to uh, people who believe that you're trading time for money, but you're not really. I mean, you're not trading your time for money for your paycheck. In most cases, most white collar workers are trading their results for money. And the best way that you can produce better results is to be sharper and more, more effective at your job. And that may mean that you need to, you know, take lunch a little bit later and actually get away from the office. That means you maybe you know, take a walk. It may mean that you need to find a great book and, and for 15 minutes, just break off from whatever you're doing and refocus on something else completely because you'll be sharper when you go back to it. Clearing your mind in a way that you can manage the information that's coming at you because in, in what we get paid to do, Jason, is to process information intelligently. And if you're suffering from information overload, you can't do that. So sometimes you need to unplug. Sometimes you need to find a, a way to distract yourself for a brief period of time so that when you go back, you're sharper and you can process that information effectively and then produce the results we're being paid for. Right. And there's some evidence that your brain is still thinking about those things. It's like it has down cycles, but it, you need to be distracted to let your brain do its work and then you come back. How many of us have walked away from a problem frustrated only to come back and see the answer staring us right in the face because yeah, we walked I- away for a few minutes? Not everybody can do this. I totally understand that. But I've, I've shifted my lunch hour to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and what I do at 2 o'clock in the afternoon is I go to the gym during, during that one-hour block. And, and I may grab uh, you know, um, something to eat on the way back to work. But that, just that physical activity, I always find that when I walk into the gym, my head is full of all kinds of things I need to sort out. 
you know, I go throw, go, go throw some iron around for a little bit and I come back to work. All, all of a sudden I find answers to things that were confusing the hell out of me before I left. And it's because I was able to distract one part of my brain to, to actually focus on other things. I think that's truly how you find great answers. That's where real inspiration comes from. I mean, you read any book on writing and they all talk about the power of taking walks. Well, why did they walk? It was so they had time to digest what they were thinking about. Yeah. And I often find I have to do it without my phone or at least without headphones because I think so often now we are distracted and given something else to think about and not given time to be bored and just allow our brain to wander and do its thing to process those ideas. We're, we're still taking a walk, trying to take a break, but still getting hit with the fire hose of information from the podcast we're listening to or whatever it is. Absolutely. I mean, you hit on probably the, the most important key in all of that, and that's allowing ourselves to be bored. We don't do that anymore. As a society, we don't do that anymore. Um, you know, you, if you're standing in line anywhere, chances are good you're playing some sort of game on your phone or you're scrolling social media. You're finding some way to distract yourself. But a lot of inspiration comes in those moments of boredom. And that, I think that's why we don't see near as much inspiration as we used to because we don't allow ourselves to be bored. And we need that time for our minds to think, our minds to, you know, un, un, unwind those knots that have us stuck. But finding that time to be bored is, is the real key. And to me, that's the white space on my calendar where I don't have anything that I'm going to do. And maybe I'm going to hit a book. Maybe I'm going to, um, you know, play one of those, those, those mindless games that I love rail rush for reasons I can't understand. But just that little white space allows my mind to process, to come back to what I was doing before, fresher, crisper, and better at getting it done. But I think that distraction, while I just talked about the power of boredom, and I think boredom is great, having that distraction to, in the middle of the workday to flip to something else, I mean, it really works. And you see that in most of the companies in Silicon Valley, right? They have an opportunity for you to go to their game room, to play foosball, whatever it is. And it's because they realize the value of you're going to get better work out of them when they come back. Because most people, having that open tab in their brain, that's going to keep them coming back. They're going to give you much, much more, more time than the time they spent wasting reading or playing that game. It's because that open tab is going to call them back to what they've got to get done. They're just going to be better at it when they get back. I think people are really starting to understand that. At least I hope so. I'd I like hope to see so. more places. All right, well, if you've listened to a few of the shows, you probably know what's coming next. But if we close out, I like to ask kind of a surprise question just to, to get um, input from everybody. Tell me what you're doing now so you can be better tomorrow. What am I doing now to be better tomorrow? I love that question. What I do every year in January, the very first book I read is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, Dale Carnegie's class, 1936. I, I've read it 17 times now because I, I read it every year in January, first time I read the book. And the fascinating thing about that is I always find something that wasn't there before. And I was, I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody said, when, when you find something in a book that you've read the second time that wasn't there before, it's not that it wasn't there before. You're finding something in yourself that wasn't there when you read it the first time. 17 times I've been reading the book and 17 times I find something in myself that wasn't there before. So that's, how, that's what I'm doing today to make myself better tomorrow. I love that. I love that idea that there's, there's something different in you. You're a different person when you read that book the next time and the next time. That's great. Absolutely. Randy, thank you so much for your time. You can be found at randy-fisher.com. I have all of your other links available in the show notes. 
Like and subscribe wherever you find your podcast, whether it's iTunes, Podcast Addict, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you have your podcast. Go ahead and give us a review. Let everyone know how we're doing so we can be found by other people so we can all help each other be better tomorrow. Be Better Tomorrow is to be found at BeBetterTomorrow.com. It's released under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, which means you can use any material from here as long as you give me credit. The music you're hearing right now is released by Income Tech. It is District 4 by Kevin McLeod, also used under Creative Commons 3.0 licensing. Go ahead and head over to BeBetterTomorrow.com to find out all of our social media links. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and let us know how we can help you be better tomorrow.